Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Okay, I want to tell you a story, all right? A couple years ago, I was with my friend on my way home, and we were driving through Ball Heights. We tried to cut across the small street to avoid traffic, but then we saw the street was blocked off by a group of people. So we parked and got out. I walked up and I saw this crowd forming a semicircle in front of this art gallery. This building looked totally out of place on the street. It's boxy and bright white, and it's got these little mini cacti growing out front. And that part of the neighborhood is super industrial. The street is cracked with potholes. But this art gallery looks like something you'd see in Santa Monica, which is the richer part of LA that's right by the beach. Anyways, that night, a group of working class folks are outside this fancy gallery. They have a bullhorn and they're confronting the gallery owners and customers. Sometimes it feels like a neighborhood changes around you before anyone has a chance to speak up. But not in Ball Heights. This is actually Nancy Mesa again, the organizer from this neighborhood, speaking at this protest. She's saying no one is an innocent actor in the fine art of gentrification. I didn't know her at the time. I didn't even realize she'd spoken at this protest until we found this video. But when I watched it, I got chills. Other people were stepping up to speak too sharing how gentrification was directly affecting them and how the gallery owners and patrons were complicit. I remember there was a young father there talking about how he couldn't afford to buy food for his kids and pay rent. There was another woman talking about how she was struggling to afford groceries. It's not easy to admit you can't afford to live where you're from anymore. I thought it was really moving, but it didn't seem like the patrons or the gallery owner did. A few people whispered to each other as they passed by, calling the protest, performance art. Nancy Mesa called them out. This is not performance. This is our neighborhood. This is our reality. This is our survival. You said, oh my God, but I worked so hard for my gallery. We worked so hard for our communities. And right now, the white privilege is showing. We are smart motherfucking people in here. And we are angry. And we have all the skills and knowledge to fucking bring down this gallery. Okay? We're not going anywhere. And what's the if y'all want to listen to the community, respect this. This isn't a spectacle. This is a reality. And your gallery coming here is part of a larger vision of gentrification. So no one is an innocent actor. So, Nancy's an organizer in Bull Heights. Fast talker who's brilliant and incisive and would often apologize for some reason after making an especially mind-blowing point. <laughs> I don't know who's going edit this. I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. She came to our Zoom interview wearing a t-shirt, black shirt, white lettering that said, gentrification is warfare. It's literal war against poor people. It's literal war against working class people, against immigrants. Okay, so remember Hollenbeck Park? There's a reason Nancy wanted to tell that story. And it really was kind of like, I, I like to tell everyone, it really was kind of like the birth story of Defend Bull Heights. 
In the months after the Hollenbeck Park showdown, tensions over gentrification in Boyle Heights reached a boiling point. Organizers started taking militant targeted stands against any sign of gentrification in the neighborhood. A coalition formed between a bunch of different neighborhood groups. And Defend Boyle Heights was born. A group known as Defend Boyle Heights. Defend Boyle Heights. The local activists and community groups are protesting the gentrification. Carrying signs saying, keep Beverly Hills out of Boyle Heights and gentrification is violence. The end result is a racist process of displacement. Folks in Boyle Heights have had enough. There are economic consequences to your presence, so you need to get the f- out of here. Stories that are popping up in the news. A real estate bike tour of Boyle Heights promising artisanal treats is canceled after an uproar from the community. A hip new cafe's front window is shattered by a slingshot. The militancy of Defend Boyle Heights was controversial, even within the neighborhood. Some people thought it went too far, that it wasn't the right way to protest gentrification. But Nancy and other organizers had a very specific plan, and they followed it. They zeroed in on one thing in particular. Art. Specifically, white art. Like that mobile opera Hopscotch. Or any of the dozen of galleries that were suddenly popping up in the neighborhood. Here's Nancy again. When Nicodine Gallery was tagged, right, by a local hero. We don't know who they are, but we support their actions. Where, you know, uh, Fuck White Art was tagged on the front. And that actually resulted in the gallery owners working with LAPD. So they, you know, they reported it as a hate crime. And Defend Boyle Heights, I think to this day, is being investigated as a hate group because of that action. The organizers saw the specter of white art creeping across the river from the rapidly gentrifying arts district, and they shut it down. I would say, like, it is no coincidence that Boyle Heights has led one of the biggest fights against gentrification, right? It really is kind of in, in the air. Resistance is in the air, and we kind of have this legacy to maintain in the hood, right, of, like, a place that is extremely political, and that takes a stand. So this was 2016, a year before Arturo gets that letter on his door telling him his rent was going to almost double. At this point, a lot of people in Bull Heights still trusted Wisad. They felt like he was a politician who wouldn't let them get displaced. But Nancy was skeptical, even then. So we had homies, you know, friends who who were displaced from Echo Park specifically and Highland Park specifically just Tell us with such urgency, like, hey, y'all, like these gentrifiers, these politicians, they're, they're going to make it seem like, you know, things are going to benefit you, like they're on your side. But they're basically just trying to do anything they can to just buy the property and kick you out. One of the biggest regrets we have here in our neighborhood is that we didn't fight back strong enough, early enough. But what we're able to get from them is just like the analysis of how fast this thing happened. So so when we saw a brewery, it's like, whoa, OK, we need to stop it now. The movement against gentrification in Boyle Heights was born from years of folks having to stand up for themselves and take care of one another. We're a very politicized community. We come from struggle and resistance, and it's not just a metaphor. Boyle Heights, East LA, Southeast LA, they've got this long history of resistance and activism. We said knew that. He grew up steeped in it. But ultimately, we said sided with the gallery owners. He came out publicly against Defend Boyle Heights. And behind closed doors, he was already siding with developers, too. People just didn't know that yet. From Neon Hum Media and LA Taco, this is Smokescreen, the sellout. 
a podcast about a politician dogged by allegations of corruption, harassment, and pathological pettiness. It's about the residents who fought gentrification even as the neighborhoods were auctioned off to the highest bidder. I'm Ray Casaneda. This time, we're gonna dig into two origin stories, Jose Wissad and the neighborhood that raised him. Episode two, Gentrification is Warfare. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's start at the beginning. I'm just our local neighborhood historian. So this is Shmuel Gonzalez. Shmuel's the founder of the Bull Heights History Studios and Tours. He's an encyclopedia of knowledge about Bull Heights. And he's so passionate about it. Sometimes he shimmies his shoulders when he's talking about some specific piece of the neighborhood's history. My family has been members of this community for six generations. And um, moving into this neighborhood in 1896. And so my family's always been storytellers of the area. So, Boyle Heights is one of LA's oldest neighborhoods outside downtown. And it actually started out as this kind of ritzy white neighborhood in the early 1900s. But then over the years, it changes. First, it's a working class Jewish community. And then, like in cities all over the United States in the early 20th century, redlining and housing segregation pushes all people of color out into the margins, like Boyle Heights. People who are not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant are designated to basically two places, south of Adams, creating South Central Los Angeles, and east of the Los Angeles River, creating East Los Angeles as we know it. In this community, we had at one time over 132 languages spoken within this community because everyone who did not fit into the average white Anglo-Saxon Protestant you know, kind of norm was just kind of designated that you could only rent, buy, and reside in these areas. Um, the Boyle Heights story is one of an immigrant story generationally to this day. A lot of Mexican workers who had industrial jobs in Vernon end up moving into the residential neighborhood right on the other side of the tracks, Boyle Heights. And so they have, from the very beginning, the Mexican families that are working class and live in the southern parts of Boyle Heights have always been directly affected by some of the pollution that's been going on. So Boyle Heights diversifies. And Schmoll says that's what made it into this kind of incubator for political resistance movements. A lot of organizing happened there. Organizing that went on to become famous and influential. Come on up, brothers! We are waiting for you! You're earning more money today because the workers are 
Let him strike at the spark that is set off the movement among farm workers to organize and to buy. Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, who also were presidents of this organization, right here, just a couple doors down from me. So it's very interesting that, believe it or not, the very foundations of things like United Farm Workers, which is considered still the gold standard of radical kind of organizing for working class people in the field, was started out of you know this community service organization, which is like the Mexican NAACP, and of course, funded by the Jewish community. So the history of Bull Heights is resistance. But Schmoll says it's also displacement, like a lot of working class black and brown neighborhoods in Los Angeles. So all of our families have the stories of generationally being displaced. My own family, Hempstead, okay, from way back in the day and everything, it was demolished to make way for the five freeway. If you live in Paul Heights, you literally can't live more than a mile and a half from a freeway. East Los Angeles is carved up by them, sectioned off like pieces of a puzzle. There are four different freeways forming a kind of square around Bull Heights. When they were built back in the 50s and 60s, they were built straight through people's homes, like Schmoll's family. Then the next family house was lost to the 60 freeway. So what happens is that my story growing up, and you would only imagine living here in the east side, when I first had to go to like downtown another place, when we would go past through here, right before we would get to the 6th Street Bridge, what happens is that in, right after we'd get over coming back, my mom would point to the area where our neighborhood used to be. And she would point to it. And she'd say, that's where grandma's house used to be. That's where our house used to be. And just we're jettisoned into a freeway. So... Fast forward to the early 70s, more than 20,000 Chicano anti-war activists marched to East LA in a mass protest, the Chicano Moratorium. Watergate is happening, the Lakers won a big championship. And little four-year-old Jose Huizar moves from Zacatecas to Boyle Heights. His father is a bracero, he works in the fields, and his mother is a meatpacking plant worker. Here's a speech Huizar gave at Princeton, one of his alma maters. I moved from Mexico, or I should say my parents brought me from Mexico, in the early 1970s, and we settled in Boa Heights. My father actually came to America as a migrant farm worker under the Bracero program, a federal program started in World War II to import temporary contract labor from Mexico. My father decided he wanted to stay, so when he had the opportunity, he did. He wanted the American dream. The work I do, um, I try not to forget what it meant to struggle. And here, he's talking about growing up in Bull Heights in the 70s and 80s. It's from an interview with Wissad posted online. I try not to forget what it meant not having much money for basic life necessities, for education. I try not to forget how easily it was to join gangs when I was growing up, how easy it was to get into a life of crime, how easy it would have been to uh, get involved in things that would have had a, a native, long-lasting effect on our lives. There's this thing you can't help thinking about when you learn about young Wisad before he became a public figure. When did Wisad become the kind of person who could do what he did? Was it all an act? Was he ever genuine? And if he was, when did he stop? So, 
Wisad ends up going to a Catholic school in the neighborhood, Bishop Mora Salesian High School. Salesian is known for being a good school. On its website, they say their mission is love with abundance, teach with passion, and inspire with imagination. And Wisad does well at Salesian. He seems well-liked. Other kids mention him in the memory section of their senior yearbook dedication. There's a very 80s picture of him. A red bow tie, tuxedo, full head of hair. In a section where they all write something about their time at the school, Wisad says, I, Jose Wisad, leave Salesian realizing that I've spent the last four years here thanking the teachers who pushed me when I needed it. Thanks, Mom, for being there. He's on the school newspaper and student government, which seems like a bit of a conflict of interest. But you know, high school. And to thank you for allowing me to mentor you as a Salesian. This is from a speech one of the Salesian priests gave about Wisad a couple years after he was first elected to city council. Warning, he's as stern as you might expect. And for all the times that, yes, I brought you your favorite meal from Jack in the Box. Well, this isn't Jack in the Box tonight. This is something better. Enjoy yourself. Wisad graduates, and he goes to UC Berkeley for undergrad, which is a great school, and he does well there too. He's in student government. He's acting just like you might expect an ambitious kid from Bull Heights to act. Driven, progressive, outspoken. One article from the Daily Californian, Berkeley's student newspaper, has Wisad saying, quote, the government knows that students are the springboard for any social movement. There are stories about Wisad opposing development at People's Park, which is the focal point of Berkeley's student movement in the 60s. He's opposing tuition increases. He's calling out Berkeley faculty for being too white and too male. He seems to be fighting for progressive causes, and it seems like he really believes in them. The newspaper's endorsement of Wisad calls him a quote, strong, relentless advocate. We think Jose Wisad will remain true to his convictions. Wisad ends up going to Princeton for grad school which for an immigrant kid from Boyle Heights just felt like a huge deal. It's very inspiring, especially coming from the neighborhood. This is Raquel Zamora, who's lived in Boyle Heights since she was a kid. She's an educator whose family owns this iconic taqueria called Zamora Brothers. It's so, so hard to overcome so many barriers and make it to college and so... His story of his educational journey was very inspiring. I just was like, wow, someone from the neighborhood was able to attend all these amazing schools. After Princeton, Wisad just keeps rising. He goes to UCLA for law school, where he meets his wife, Rochelle Rios. Wisad marries Rochelle in 1989. Two years later, Wisad is elected to the Los Angeles Unified School Board. Here's Raquel again. While he was on the school board, it was just like all these ribbon cuttings, like I said, for new schools and new developments. And I think that that's what set him up very well for a council seat because he had done such a good job in the school board. So spoiler, Wisad is about to run for city council. After the break, he steps into a long and storied history of politicians who do some questionable things while they're representing CD14.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. I used to live, uh, I used to live in Wizards District, um, and I have seen that district change so much, even just over the course of the last 10 years. This is Scott Frazier. Scott's kind of like an encyclopedia for LA politics, past and present. When you ask him a question, you can almost hear the Rolodex flipping in his head as he tracks down the exact right piece of information. He's the co-host of LA Podcast, this really popular show about Los Angeles politics. CD14 has had, yes, I, I would say that is right. It has had an above average share of uh, council members leaving under uh, you know, clouds or, or suspicion of, of wrongdoing. Okay, first on our list. Richard Alatore. Elected in 1985, he's this well-respected guy, a former state assemblyman. But some personal issues come up while he's in office. I'm just going to read you an LA Times headline from September 1998. Judge says test shows Alatore is using cocaine. It's a whole thing. Alatore ends up going to rehab. So Alatore's out, doesn't run for a final term. And that's when Nick Pacheco gets elected. Here's Pacheco. I don't want to say anything negative about Richard, you know, Tory today, but at the time, because he was distracted with other issues in his life, the district fell apart. And so my first priority was to get the district back in order. Okay, there are a couple scandals that come up while Pacheco's in office. I'm just going to tell you about one. So Antonio Villarraigosa was this very charismatic politician who lived in CD14, Pacheco's district. Villarraigosa had run for mayor, lost, and it seemed like he might be eyeing Pacheco's seat. And then the strange thing happened. The boundaries of city council districts were redrawn, and all of a sudden, Villarraigosa said he found out that he didn't live in CD14. Most of his neighborhood was still in the district, but not the block he lived on. By the way, you have to live in a district to run to represent it. For the record, Pacheco said this was a coincidence. For some reason, he kept telling people that I did that. I didn't do that. District writers did that. And so he he got a lot of sympathy for that. But if Pacheco was worried about Villarraigosa running to take a seat, he'd be right. That's exactly what happened. 
Villarraigosa moved into CD14 and ran. Scott Frazier again. Pacheco lost to Antonio Villarraigosa, who was just a political force in the early 2000s. And then, just two years into his term, Villarraigosa did what a lot of people suspected he would. And Villarraigosa didn't finish his term because he ended up getting swept into the mayor's office shortly thereafter. So CD14 is once again up for grabs. Pacheco's like, I want my seat back. But there's a young, new hotshot who's also running. We said. Here's Pacheco. So he made himself available. You know, school board president, very, you know, viable candidate. So that's what ended up getting him into the race. Now, when we were walking that day, door to door to get votes on the day of election, the primary election, I bumped into Jose in the projects in the Strata Courts. And we were talking briefly, you know, because we were both working. And we both for sure thought we were going to be a runoff. But no, man, he kicked my butt. Bissad wins. And again, it feels huge. It feels like CD14 is finally going to be represented by someone who really cares about its residents. Someone they can trust. Like it's finally going to emerge from decades of questionable local politicians. City Councilman Jose Huizar's supporters were dancing in their seats as the early election return numbers were rolling in. The councilman arrived at his election night party in a high school gymnasium, cheering what appears to be his victory tonight in the city council race. To be given the opportunity growing up here in Bow Heights to now be able to serve in city council, that's what drives me, that's what motivates me. When he ran for office, he actually had a lot of community support, right? The narrative that was being spun around him was kind of as this, like, our new Latino savior, right? I was so happy to hear that we were getting our first Mexican city council member. And I thought that was huge. It's still 10 years before the birth of Defend Bull Heights when everything started blowing up. When the fight over the future of Bull Heights became this real concrete battle happening in the streets of the neighborhood. But by the time the fight came to the streets, some developers had actually been eyeing Bull Heights for a decade or more. They were looking at one historic apartment complex in particular, home to thousands of residents in Bull Heights, Wyvernwood. Boyle Heights will be made, or Boyle Heights will be broken on the fate of Wyvernwood, I believe. That's next time on The Sellout. The Sellout is produced by Neon Hub Media and LA Taco. I'm your host, Mariah Castaneda. My co-reporters are Alexis Olivier Ray and Carla Green. Carla Green is our lead producer and she wrote the episodes. Our editor is Catherine St. Louis. Vikram Patel is our consulting editor. Associate editor is Stephanie Serrano. Associate producer is Liz Sanchez. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Fact checker is Sarah Ivry. Our sound designer is Hans Dale Sue. Eduardo Arenas made our theme music. Other original music by Moni Mendoza. Special thanks to Erica Lindo, Javier Cabral, Tanner Robbins, Haley Fager, Natalie Wren, Adrian Riskin, Shara Morris, Navani Otero, Janet Viafana, Vanessa and Jorge Casaneda, and Ivan Fernandez. If you want to know more about what you've heard on the show so far, head over to LATaco.com to see a beautiful map 
of some of the places we talked about made by Tommy Gallegos, as well as new reporting and interviews. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.